Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome to the minicast. We thought we would pull out the two iconic books, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, and go chapter by chapter. This is a companion to our Alice in Wonderland episode, episode 28. If you needed the blow-by-blow of the story, this is it. If you don't need it, go back to the... Episode 28. 28. Let's start with Alice in Wonderland, first published in 1865. The book begins with a poem about the creation of the story. It begins, all in the golden afternoon, full leisurely we glide, for both our oars with little skill, by little arms are plied. And it's about the adventure on the river that Charles and the girls had while they were creating this story. So chapter one, probably one of the two most famous scenes in the entire Alice franchise, down the rabbit hole. So Alice is feeling bored while she's sitting on the riverbank with her sister, who is reading a boring book. And I've always thought, hmm, I bet that's a history book. Wow. Well, no pictures or conversation. Um, So she notices a white rabbit go by, and he uses my favorite word of all time, Westgate. That's a word you don't hear too much in American English, Westgate. Now, would you like to use it in an American English sentence? (laughs) I do not look good in a Westgate. No. There you go. So she falls down this huge long hall, so dramatic, but has time somehow to put a jar of marmalade back on a shelf. I'm not sure... Gravity speaking. Well, she doesn't want to hurt anybody that's at the bottom. So that's really nice. But yeah, how, kind. how does she get it in the cat? I've never understood that time-space continuum. No, thing. and I think it was something that fascinated Lewis Carroll. So she lands with a bump, and she notices she's in a hall with a lot of locked doors, and their comedy ensues because she sees a bottle marked Drink Me. She's careful to check if it says poison on it. That's right. She's heard all those terrible stories. Because if you were going to leave poison around... You would leave it in a bottle. And Marked then, poison. Right. <laughs> and, the, and we think, you know, the bottle is being kind of strange looking with a tag attached to it, but medicine bottles of the time, that's how they were. They, they had a cork in them, not a screw top, obviously, and they were had a paper label tied to them telling you the contents. Only this one just had directions. <laughs> so I always love the absurdity of she gets small but doesn't have the key. She's left it up high. Right. Dang it! i got to eat the cake. Now i got to go big. Now I can't fit in the door. Dang it! The second chapter is The Pool of Tears, and this is the one where Alice cries. She starts crying, and she floods the place with her tears. She starts swimming, and she meets a mouse who's also swimming along with her, and it's just a bizarre situation. She's seven years old in this story, by the way. She's remarkably mature for her age (laughs) in this whole thing. Very self-reliant, actually. I don't know that my seven-year-olds could handle this type of situation. So she offends the mouse immediately by using a phrase that she's learned in her French book. <laughs> it's not la plume de ma tante, which la everyone knows. La plume de ma tante is sous la table. There you go. It is où est ma chatte, which is where is my cat? And the mouse is like, goodbye. <laughs> and so that's really sad. But a whole bunch of animals start coming around. Interestingly enough, these are all whoever's in the boats. So there's an eaglet, and Edith's in the boat, and there's a duck, and Mr. Duckworth is rowing the boat, and there's a dodo, and that's Charles Dodgson, and there's a lorry, which is a little bird, and that's Lorena. So all the people in the boat are swimming around in the flood. And so everybody's, what? How are we going to get dry? 
And the mouse decides to give them a long, boring speech about William the Conqueror. Okay, that's the wrong kind of dry, but that is hilarious. <laughs> Finally, they're like, that's not going to work. Let's run around in a circle. Let's have and, a caucus race. Yeah. Can't you see that happening in real life, though? A sudden rainstorm has come, mm-hmm. and the children's clothes are all wet, and Charles Dodgson says, okay, get out and run around. That'll make you dry off. That's true. It may have been raining that day that Dodgson and the girls were on their rowing trip. They talk about it being a bright, sunny day, but if you look back in the weather records of the time, it was actually cold and rainy that day, according to the records. So was it sunny? Was it rainy? Was it both? Don't know. But that would make sense, that they got wet in the rain, and they were wondering how to dry off, so they added it to the story. So cute. Yeah. But then Alice can't can't keep her mind in the game, and again, she frightens the mouse away by talking about how strong and moderately ferocious her cat is. And so... Chapter 4. The rabbit sends a little bill. Okay, so the white rabbit's back, and he's mad. Because he can't find his gloves to give to the duchess, and he can't find her fan, and he mistakes Alice for his servant, Marianne. Either he doesn't look. Rabbits don't have good eyesight, do they? I Because they live underground. Maybe he doesn't have good eyesight. Let's give him that. Okay. (laughs) But he, for some reason, thinks she's his servant. Marianne, what are you doing out here? Go find these gloves. Go find these fans. And Alice is, like, getting away, so she just goes inside. Well, unfortunately, something about going inside, probably the fan, makes her start growing. So she grows, and she grows, and she's inside the house, and she starts having to bend her head over, and her knee hits her in the face, and her uh, hands are kind of trapped, and she's in the house. And the white rabbit is so mad and tells his gardener, whose name is Bill, the lizard, they can't get the door open. And the white rabbit's furious. And he sends that poor lizard down the chimney. And Alice hears him coming. And I don't know what grudge she has against Bill, the lizard, but she basically flicks him up the chimney like a pop gun. And Bill (laughs) flies through the air. And everybody's like, ah, ah. And so they all decide to throw rocks at the monster who's in the house. And so they throw rocks. And in the dream world, all the rocks turn into little cakes. What do we do with cakes in Wonderland? We eat cakes and we get small. <laughs> if, but it only works that way in real life. <laughs> oh, Susan. I know. You've hit upon a way that Wonderland is way better. It is than way this. better. Anyway, now we're at chapter five, which is advice from a caterpillar. Alice comes upon a mushroom and sitting on it is a blue caterpillar who is smoking a hookah pipe. Now... There is no evidence that Lewis Carroll was ever a dragged-out kook. Yeah, that's... Uh, in an that's era of myth. laudanum love, that's pretty impressive, mm-hmm. let me tell you. But the caterpillar smoking a hookah is a pretty iconic drug reference. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting on a mushroom. But really, there's no evidence. He's a squeaky clean dude. And the, and the hookah probably just had tobacco in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the mushroom, there's one side will make you bigger and one side will make you smaller. So she takes a piece of each and kind of plays around with it. Go ask Alice when she's ten, ten feet, feet tall. tall. <laughs> yeah. I love this little interaction she has in this scene with the pigeon. She mm. gets really big and goes through the trees and the pigeon is like, Oh, I spend all day guarding against serpents and then one sticks its face into my nest. Blah, 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 blah. And Alice is like, I'm not a serpent, I'm a little girl. Because these animals feel totally free to yell at her. Everyone's telling her what to do. It's just like a little kid would feel, probably. Yeah. Chapter 6 is very absurd. It's called Pig and Pepper. A fish footman delivers an invitation to a frog footman to the Duchess. 
from the queen. I'm wondering if some of the servants didn't have these attributes. That's what I'm wondering about. Like, are they based on someone in the house? Like, maybe there was a fish face right. servant, and they, those kids knew who that was. And there was a froggy, short, stout, maybe warty servant. Um, so Alice is curious, again. Alice is very curious. Curiouser and curiouser. Curiouser. So she goes into the house, and in the house, the cook is just throwing the dishes and making the soup with too much pepper. So it makes Alice and the Duchess and her baby, but not the cook, sneeze. <laughs> the Duchess hands Alice the baby, which turns into a pig. It's like a dream. Things turn into different things. Yeah, all the time. It's funny because she said, this is a very ugly baby. Or a very handsome pig. Lewis Carroll, when people handed him a baby, which may not have been the most adorable baby because you know all babies are cute except for the ones that aren't. <laughs> and he would say, now that's a baby. That's perfect. I think we should all use that. I well, think that's so. That's a baby. <laughs> this is the chapter where we meet. Actually, Alice Little's favorite character, the Cheshire Cat, who has cat attitude. Catitude. Um, if you think about Lewis Carroll's photography habit, the process that he used is called colloidal process. And by doing that process, you look at a blank plate, you mm-hmm. look at the blank plate, you look at the blank plate, and all of a sudden, out of the mist comes your photo. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that was kind of like, it's kind of magical. Right. The way those pictures appear. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that was the basis of how the Cheshire Cat appears. I just think that's If it's not the basis, it's a wonderful illustration of it. Chapter 7. This one's seriously the most famous chapter of them all. And I'm not sure why, because it's not very long, but it is colorful. It is, indeed. And it is a mad tea party. Alice sits down at a tea party with the March Hare, Hatter, and the Dormouse. And they bombard her with riddles and tell her that time has punished them by standing still at tea time. So that's all they do, is they just have this lifelong tea party. Because time has stopped. There is a very famous, non-completed riddle. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Okay. And then it's just left there, hanging. Mm-hmm. And he meant it to be there, hanging. And he was badgered so much, like, well, so, how how is a raven like a writing desk? And finally, like, after years and years and years of this, he just said, because you can produce a few notes all very flat. And, like, that's really whatever. And then some people have said, because they both have inky quills, there's another one that somebody's mother used to say, why is a raven like a writing desk? Because neither one you can ride like a bicycle. Fair enough. Which is actually a very... Carolian answer. Yes. <laughs> There's a similar uncompleted riddle in The Breakfast Club. Do you remember when Judd Nelson's character's crawling? He's crawling across the ceiling, and all of a sudden he's like, So a naked lady walks into a bar with a poodle under one arm. You, don't you remember that? Seriously, I'm going to tell you the truth, and this is going to totally date me. John Hughes' movies started when I was in college, so I slightly <sighs> post dated them. Okay. So I enjoy them, but apparently not as much as those just a few years younger than me, such as yourself. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, well, he says, the bartender says, I guess you won't be needing a drink. And the naked lady says, and then he goes, <laughs> and falls through the okay, ceiling. Yeah, yeah, through the ceiling. Yep, yep, yep. And yep, so yep. that is kind of what you're thinking of, like, well, well wait, we're supposed to, it never comes up. Never. So that was kind of like a bizarre thing to talk about at parties. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Because Poe wrote on both is my favorite answer. Oh. That's better than Lewis Carroll's answer. I like that one. Mm. I like that one a lot. I'm going to use it next time somebody asks me how Raven is like a writing desk. 
No, that comes up a lot, does it? It does. But I imagine it did for him. Oh, it totally did. I, I mean, it would be like those 70s sitcom stars being asked, I mean, how many times do people go up to Henry Winkler and go, hey. Oh, It'd poor be, thing. It's like way past its de- expiration date. Just stop. Just yeah. stop. That Hatter is not the Mad Hatter in this book at all. Um, the Cheshire Cat refers to him as being mad. They're both mad. We're all mad. Mm-hmm. Mad, mad, mad. And it's called a mad tea party. Mm-hmm. There was an expression that predates Lewis Carroll called mad as a hatter. Largely, they think, because mercury was used in the production of the felt to make mm-hmm. the hats. And, you know, mercury poisoning makes you cuckoo for Cocoa Pops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so mad as a hatter, very common. So his name, we just refer to him as a mad hatter, but he's really just a hatter. hatter. And it stayed hatter for a while. Even in Disney, mm-hmm. the Disney 1951 movie, it was the Hatter. Well, anyway, this tea party is so famous. I've been to design events where whole teams of designers, mm-hmm. sometimes three and four at the same event, whoops, have recreated this tea party. Mm-hmm. It's an icon. Oh, sure. Chapter 8, The Queen's Croquet Ground. Alice comes to a garden where live playing cards are painting white roses red because the queen hates white roses. If you go back in the genealogy, supposedly Alice Little is a Lancastrian. Mm. If you were to go down the, I have no idea if this even came up, but York roses are white, Lancaster roses are red. So perhaps the cards planted the wrong kind of rose, and if they didn't want to get their heads cut off, right. those roses better be Lancaster red roses. Dang it. <laughs> And so they're hurrying and painting them red. We just can't leave the tutors. I know. <laughs> Is that I hilarious? Can't leave the tutors behind. <laughs> oh, anyway. So Alice meets the queen and the king, which is kind of interesting because in the further adaptation, the king doesn't really play a big role. And so she's ordered to play a game of croquet with the queen, but instead of a ball, it's a hedgehog. And instead of a club, it's a flamingo. I don't know where these animals come from, but that's an absurd game of croquet. And unfortunately, the wickets keep walking around because they're made of bent over playing cards that get tired of hanging out and they just move around. This is an impossible game to win. Croquet kind of is, unless you just want to win by hitting somebody in the ankle with a ball. And it's a hedgehog. That would hurt really bad. Well, it would hurt the hedgehog to get whacked about with a flamingo. In the original drawings that... Uh, Lewis Carroll did, he did not have a flamingo. He had an ostrich. <laughs> Ostriches are heavy. How would you hold one upside down? That's true. Flamingos are all light. Yeah. And pretty. And pink. <laughs> I have a flamingo on my front porch. Her name is Hazel. I dress her for the seasons. Well, all right. That's yeah. cool. Well, <laughs> you said that almost as if you believed it. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so the queen exercises her irritation at the Cheshire Cat, who is really not taking her authority very well at all. He's like, whatever. And she's like, off with his head. Please feel free to behead me because I'm just a head. Knock yourself out. I thought that was hilarious. That is hilarious. This is a visually awesome chapter. I think. Like, if, if yes. you're a small child thinking about all these colors and everybody's moving around and everybody's got attitude problems and it's just awesome. And playing cards coming to life. Cards, which is kind of a hard thing for kids to manipulate and sometimes it gets kind of boring. All of a sudden they're alive. <laughs> That's cool. Chapter 9, The Mock Turtle Story. My personal favorite. <laughs> I am Team Mock Turtle. He is forgotten by history. Why 
is the Mad Hatter, given such prominence with his fabulous hat, and the Mock Turtle, who has two whole chapters worth of being there. This <clears throat> doing um, cool stuff, too. All the Hatter does is have a tea party. I know. Mock Turtle gets to do some really cool things, although he's got an attitude problem. Yeah, of course he does. He's, he's whiny. And he's got a friend, the Griffin, who, in my mind, talks like Hagrid. The way that his construction. <laughs> I'm are. sorry, I, I have no reference. Could you do that for me? No, I cannot. <laughs> but so, the Griffin is awesome, uh, mythological figure, but he's the nice one. He's not a scary guy at all. He's, uh, But he talks like Hagrid. He's so, like, kind and just jovial, and he hangs out with this maudlin weeping, my life sucks kind of guy called the Mock Turtle. Here's the thing about Mock Turtles. Turtle soup, actual turtle soup, <laughs> was a very popular dish in Victorian times. Mm -hmm. But the turtle it was made from started to become really expensive due to demand. And so, if you wanted to serve turtle soup, you had to make Mock Turtle Soup. So the Mock refers to the soup. And Lewis Carroll made it all absurd. Okay, so what is mock turtle soup made from? Obviously, it's made from mock turtles. And thus, the mock turtle was born. That is funny. And really, it's made from cow parts. Yeah, that's why in every illustration of the mock turtle you'll see, you'll be like, he's a turtle and he has a cow head. Why is that? It's because the very first step in making mock turtle soup is boil a cow's head to give it that particular gelatinous, glutinous consistency so desired in a soup. If you were to boil okra... I'll cut it in half and like pull the parts apart that gouge that comes out that is what you're looking for in the mock turtles okay, Susan is like, making a gag face right now there's like okra is like the gaggiest food I had this roommate in, in college and she would put okra and canned tomato soup which tomato soup just grosses me out anyway I always think it's like blood it's like hot blood it's gross nice and then she put okra in there and it would just be this stringy best <laughs> diet aid ever <laughs> I love the wordplay in this chapter. And this is one chapter you really need to go back to the annotated Alice and, you know, I just love how he describes at school what he learned was reeling and writhing, of course, and the different branches of arithmetic, ambition, distraction, uglification, and derision. <laughs> it's just cute. It is very cute. I just love it. It's, um, it's just full of comedy. And then they go and do a dance called the Lobster Quadrille. Which is chapter 10. And this is Alice's favorite song. It's a song called Beautiful Soup. And it's made to the tune of Star of the Evening, which is one of the Little Sisters' actual performance pieces mm -hmm. that they used to be trotted out to sing before <laughs> adult company. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very famous song that they knew, and the fact that he could just totally mock the lyrics and make a new song right there was pretty delightful, I think. Yeah, no, that's fun. Have you ever done, I'm sure you've done that with your kids. We have yeah. a version of yeah. <laughs> the Wells Fargo wagon. Yeah. From Music Man. <laughs> and it goes, once I got a big box of Beyblades, and Grandma sent a big ninja go. So, yes. <laughs> I'm hoping for a big bag of candy. It's like, <laughs> it just goes on and on. So, yes, I've done that with my child, too. Yes. I never have. Susan just doesn't want to sing. <laughs> again. So no, children, I think nobody wants to hear me sing again. <laughs> so, children are just delighted by song lyrics changing. It's it just, it hits their funny bone. I love, I have to say, I love, Lewis Carroll in this, he knows how to hit some high points. Mm-hmm. For little kids' stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, he can't do, like, modern day, you know, a fart is a big hit. 
Right. But in Victorian times, you're not going to be able to have anybody farting. It's just not that. <laughs> no. It's a shame, because it was, that well, would be you really could talk different. about it in different terms and disguise it. So, also, in this one, uh, the Queen of Hearts has an awesome line. She looks at the Duchess and says, either you or your head must be off. Like, get out, <laughs> yeah, or we'll cut off your freaking head. I'm trying to think of um, personal applications of that. Oh, I could use it every day. I could, too. Either you or your head must be off. And the Duchess has a very good line, too, although it's really long. She says, the moral of that is, never imagine yourself not to be otherwise than what it would appear to others that what you were or might have been was not otherwise than what you'd been would have appeared to them to be otherwise. W-T-H. And Alice is like, I think I need that diagram. I don't understand it. And the Duchess is very happy that that was completely incomprehensible. She finds that delightful. I'm sure Lewis Carroll was very happy that it was completely incomprehensible. So we get to the last two chapters. Chapter 11, Who Stole the Tarts? And Chapter 12, Alice's Evidence. Now I have to say these two chapters, they kind of bore me. And why should they? I don't know. They kind of bore me, but it's a curtain call. It's clearly a curtain call. People from all over the story Mm -hmm. appear in this curtain call. Um, So it's a good finale for a store, wrapping it up. Uh, Alice attends a trial where the Knave of Hearts is accused of stealing the Queen's tarts because it rhymes, most likely. And you couldn't use farts. And you couldn't use farts. (laughs) Dang it. But it would actually be a very good servant thing to do to steal the Queen's farts. I'm sorry, was that you, Your Highness? No, so, I'm so sorry, it was me. No, in the Lewis Carroll world, they would put it in a jar, (laughs) put a cork on it, and label it. Smell me. Sick. Sick. That's funny. Let's make those. Smell me. Smell me. We're going to make a million on Etsy, man. Okay. We could put like lavender in them or something. Oh, sure. Lavender. What have you been eating? I know. Uh, Okay, so rule number 42 comes into play here. Lewis Carroll uses the number 42 a lot in in his works, particularly in Hunting of the Snark, which I highly recommend. It's a long, epic poem of absurdity. Somebody else that uses the number 42 a lot is Douglas Adams in mm-hmm. his Life, the Universe, and Everything. Um, 42 is the answer to the universe, yes, but somebody is. forgot to ask the computer what the question was. Mm-hmm. So 42 is the answer. That's interesting. And I wonder if he got it from Lewis Carroll. I don't know. But anyway, rule 42 is everyone a mile high must leave the courtroom. Right, because Alice is called as a witness and knocks over the jury box, but she's growing. She's like, keeps, she's growing again. This is another one of those shrinking, growing things. She's growing. And the king and the queen order Alice gone with rule number 42. She refuses, and she argues with the queen who says, off with her head, you're nothing but a pack of cards. And they swarm her. And then what happens? She wakes up, and it's not a pack of cards. It's a bunch of dried leaves that have blown on her face as she sleeps, and her sister is carefully brushing them off. It was nothing but a dream. It was a dream. Well, that about does it for the first book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Let's take a quick little break, and when we come back, we'll start in with book number two. Exciting news! We have a new voicemail box. We would love to hear the sound of your voice. If you have a comment or a question or want to leave us any kind of message at all, just call us at 816-934-1234 and let us know what you're thinking. Again, the number is 816-934-1234. 
And now let's move on to The Looking Glass, published first in 1871. This is the continuation of the story of Alice. It starts exactly six months after the previous one. We know when the first one starts because Alice Little's birthday is May 4th. This is November 4th, which we knew because the boys are outside in the snow gathering wood for the bonfires for Guy Fawkes Day. Voila! So it's snowing and it's cold and she's inside. This one plays with time and space and things going backwards because they're in the mirror and it's Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, It is kind of delicious to look in a mirror. If you ever have the chance, I remember being a little kid and the hallway mirror was so fascinating. Mm -hmm. You would look in and you would try to see the edge just like Alice did. Mm -hmm. If only I could just look around the corner. We had a three-way mirror in a bathroom and if you looked, it was like a long hallway of you. I know. I would sit there and play with that forever. This story also has a chess theme where the other one had a card theme. Alice looks in the mirror and she discovers, much to her surprise, that it's fluid and she can go through it. And so she does. She steps right through the mirror and into the looking glass house. Which she snarkily comments when she turns around is nowhere near as tidy as the room that she left. Whatever. (laughs) It's just it's as tidy, just the other way around. And everything is mirror is a mirror reflection in this room. And she finds a book. She finds a book called Jabberwocky. And she can't read it. It's all mumbly-jumbly. <laughs> and then she holds it up to the mirror, and she can read it. We all know the first, at least the first stanza, don't we, of Jabberwocky? "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the boar groves, and the mome wraths outgrabe." <laughs> if you look at Jabberwocky written out, it looks like mumbo jumbo. But you can understand the <laughs> yes. parts of the speech, which is yes. so funny. It sounds like it should make sense. Mm-hmm. But then you're you're like, uh, 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 I don't get it. And actually, we don't actually recommend Wikipedia very often, but on Wikipedia, there's a little audio clicker, and you can hear the poem being read by a man. That is awesome. It is. And you can look at the words, and I think that's pretty... That's a cool thing to do. Look at the words and then listen to the audio. And Lewis Carroll wanted that. He asked the printer, can we print that in mirror printing? Can we print that? And the printer's like, I can do whatever you want or some money. <laughs> he's like, well, never. okay, never mind. <laughs> and the printer basically is like, you just tell me what to do and I'll tell you how much it costs. <laughs> I love that. So he decided against what that would have been cool. I will tell you, the illustration... That goes with that poem is it freaking scary. It is scary. It looks like the alien from the alien movies almost. It really does. It was so alarming, in fact, that Lewis Carroll got a little bit nervous at the end and he kind of shocked it around uh, his child friends and mm-hmm. their families to see, is this too, you know, the kids are like, yeah, you know, they didn't <laughs> right. care. Well, and interestingly, the illustrator, Tennille, has placed what looks like the back of the Alice character as the one fighting the Jabberwock, although in the poem, it is the narrator's son. It is a man, mm-hmm. like, or a boy, mm-hmm. fighting with the Vorpal sword. It has nothing to do with Alice. Alice actually never does fight the Jabberwock, unlike the new movie yeah. that comes out. Which we talk about on the full-length podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I love the line that she says when she finishes it, because, oh my goodness, so much of life is this. She says, it's very pretty, she said when she had finished it, but it's rather hard to understand. Somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, but I don't exactly know what they are. However, somebody killed something, that's clear at any rate. I love that. <laughs> Somebody stuff you read and you're like, 
I don't really know what that means, but I have an image of it and a feeling, so that's good. I'm almost thinking the whole of Alice in Wonderland is like that because, you know, yes. you read it when you were little. <laughs> Thank you, yes. And you don't really get any of it, but it's so swirly. It's like watching Lost, trying to tell somebody what that was. That TV show was about. Again, I refer to Lost because there's a lot of Alice references in the Lost TV show. So upon leaving the house, she comes into a spring garden where the flowers can talk. And they cleverly say, well, in your country, you turn the soil and make it all soft. And all the flower beds are too soft and the flowers are asleep all the time because they're so comfortable. But in this country, the beds are hard as a rock and we're always awake. That's kind of clever. A bed. Yes. Flower bed. Yes. Asleep. I think that's so cute. And they mock her. Man, I used to love when I was a little kid that the flowers are so snotty. What does that say about me as a child? <laughs> the flowers are so snotty it's, to her. It's, you think of those pretty girls that look so pretty and everybody's petting their heads and then they turn and stick their tongue out at you. They criticize Alice's, quote, petals. They think her dress is too messy and her hair is a mess. And they're like, don't worry. All of us drop our petals eventually. I guess you can't help it. <laughs> they're so horrible. So um, the flowers tell her there's another flower that can move around like her somewhere. And Alice is so excited. She thinks there's another little girl. There is a little bit of a paradox in this garden because when you go down the path the way you think you should be going, you end up absolutely going backwards of the way you intended to go. And so after many times of the flowers telling her and not understanding, she finally turns around, faces the house, heads back toward the house, and bashes into the Red Queen. Now the Red Queen is going to have a challenge for her, and that's what basically what the rest of this story is about. If Alice, thinking like Chess, can make it to the eighth rank or the row, she will immediately be crowned a queen. And that refers to a chess rule, and it's not always a queen in actual chess. If you can get a pawn all the way to the other side, you may then replace it with any piece except a king. Most people choose a queen because it's the most powerful piece and can move the most directions. Another good choice in some cases would be a knight. So she didn't have to turn into a queen, but that's the most common choice. So Alice is one of the White Queen's pawns. The White Queen has a little baby named Lily who's too young to play. And so the White Queen is down a piece. Would Alice like to play for the White Queen? So that kind of explains, like, she met the Red Queen. Why doesn't she work for her? I think the Red Queen just wanted to challenge her. Yeah, I guess so. And that would make sense because they would be on opposing sides. So Alice starts as a pawn in the second row and starts her challenge. And then she immediately gets on a train that jumps right over the third row and directly into the fourth row because pawns on their first move can move two spaces. So in the fourth row, she meets the Creeposauruses that freak me out, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, who are famous already, even during the telling of this story from a nursery rhyme. Right. So they're, you know, they're familiar characters to the children who are reading this. Yeah, a lot of adaptations will combine Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland in some kind of bizarre ways. They leave things out, like the mock turtle, <laughs> and then they put back in things from the Looking Glass that don't seem to, to match. Like, the White Queen is nowhere mm -hmm. in the first one. Right. There's no White Queen. And here she is. So Tweedledum and Tweedledee freak me out, and I don't like them, and they're mean, and they always fight. Oh, in the new movie, it's like, wee, wee, wee. I would totally not talk to them, girl. Run away. <laughs> so scary. So the Tweedles draw Alice's attention to the Red King, who is sleeping under a tree. And um, I'm wondering if they were trying to get her not to wake him up so she wouldn't checkmate him or whatever. What is the Red King doing there? He had to be sleeping somewhere. But a king in the opposing fourth row seems weird to me. Like, how did the king get all the way out there in a game of chess? 
Think about playing chess. Where's the king usually? <laughs> Seriously, not a very good chess player. Uh, well, the king would <laughs> Does be... it surprise you? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I always thought it was weird that the king was anywhere near there, because why would he be that far in enemy territory mm-hmm. when the king is usually... That's the last freaking thing you move. He stays in the back row pretty much that's the true. whole game. I don't know. Okay, so... The king is there, and they trick her and poke her and say that she's just a figure in his dream, and the second he wakes up, she's going to disappear. And she starts to cry, and they say, philosophically, you won't make yourself any realer by crying. You just want to slap them, don't you? I don't like them. <laughs> they do, however, provide me with one delightful thing. They recite a poem called The Walrus and the Carpenter that I love. You love this one. And it's all, it's a mostly forgotten story about, you know, trickery and greed. Basically, the walrus and carpenter trick all these oysters to come on their own accord out of the ocean and follow them down the beach where they feast upon them. Right. And ironically, in a twist of life imitating art, there is a fabulous restaurant in Seattle called The Walrus and the Carpenter that serves oysters. Clever people. We'll link you to it, but good luck getting in. It's a tiny little place. It was recently profiled on Unique Eats on the on a cooking channel. channel. I just think that is so clever. So they start battling because the nursery rhyme. They battle mm-hmm. over a rattle because it rhymes. So many things happen because they rhyme. So finally they battle, only to be frightened away by an enormous crow, or, in the case of the recent adaptation, taken away by a giant crow, which is way better. Revenge on Tweedledum and Tweedledee. So Alice next gets to meet, finally, the White Queen, who is absent-minded. She is a chess wreck. (laughs) She is a chess wreck. Her hair is a wreck, her sweater's buttoned wrong, Alice fixes her up. Um, She's kind of a dotty. And I always thought, I was trying to think, who would I cast in this part? You know Phoebe from Friends? Oh, yeah, that would be good. Maybe a maid to look older would be a good, like, completely flighty, nice, friendly, smiley. Just She's older now than she, when she was when she was on Friends. But I'm picturing <laughs> the White Queen is 60. 60. Oh. Or so. I think Kathy Bates could play a good White Queen. No, she's too strong. You need someone with... Yeah, she's an actress. She can play weak. You've got to have somebody with something flapping around loose. Phyllis Diller? Oh, <laughs> no, she's too abrasive. But, yeah, just um, Betty White. Let's stick Betty White in there. <laughs> oh, she might be very good. Betty White is the White Queen. Oh, that would have been way better. But the White Queen has a really cool power. She can remember future events, which is kind of cool. Although it seems to add to her dottiness. Precognition is not always a gift, perhaps. She does have one other superpower in that she believes six impossible things before breakfast, the White Queen, and encourages Alice to do the same. I think that's a good life goal. Might as well. Maybe just start with one. Okay. So, anyway, she reminds me of Phoebe from Friends, and I the whole time I wanted to shake her, like, wake up, you bumbling doofus. She has another superpower. She could transform into an animal. Okay, this is the chapter I have to say. I'm not on this chapter side here. This this fifth row is freaking me out. Because for no apparent reason, the White Queen turns into a sheep. Just like that. And, and the whole thing turns into a shop. So a sheep in a shop. Okay, that sounds funny. But then all of a sudden there's water, there's a boat. The sheep starts screaming about, Feather, feather, you're going to catch a crab. Which seems like nonsense, but in a turn of looking glass cookery, <laughs> actually makes sense because you feather your oars and catching a crab is a rowing term. So 
I just think that's funny that you've got the most absurd things, screaming things that sound like nonsense, but are in fact making sense as Alice is actually rowing a boat at the time. And there's a metaphor. That's the sound of my head exploding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, there's a metaphor for life in here, too. Alice tries to get these dream rushes, these beautiful flowers, and she's like, the best ones always seem to be out of reach, and then when I get them, they fade in my hand. Well, that's a sad life. <laughs> I know. That is a sad Reach for your dreams only to be disappointed. Yeah, uh, that's not a very good moral, is it? Not really. Mm. No. So she goes into row six. And encounters another I have hearts written on this chapter. My other favorite, this is number two, Humpty Dumpty, is my favorite. So he combines the Cheshire Cat's bad attitude with the Mock Turtle's wordplay. He's the best. He's the best. Plus he's a big fat egg. <laughs> and he's celebrating his unbirthday. I think we should all celebrate our unbirthdays. I think we should too, and then on our actual birthday we'll just not say anything. Hmm. The concept of an unbirthday is, if you think about it logically, how many birthdays do you have? One, says Alice. Well, how many unbirthdays do you have? And then you have, what, 363. So why would you celebrate your birthday? That's foolish. Which it is, I guess. <laughs> if you can have cake the rest of the time, why are you just having it once? I love it. Because it's not special if you have it 364 times. Yeah, eat dessert first, Susan. I do sometimes. I know you you make it a habit, and sometimes I do eat. Sometimes I only eat dessert the end. There you go. Humpty Dumpty decides to translate Jabberwocky for her. And everything he says makes 100% sense, but is 100% nonsense at the same time, which I love. Well, what does this word mean? Well, it means this, he says. And, And sure enough, if you put it in the sentence, it makes total sense. But what the heck? It's the most masterful chapter ever. Also, That's why you have hearts written around it. I have it. hearts written around it. <laughs> so Humpty Dumpty, because he has to, it says so in the nursery rhyme, he falls and he's saved by all the king's men. Now, who are all the king's men in this story? It's the White King and the Lion and the Unicorn, also from another nursery rhyme. The Lion and the Unicorn in that nursery rhyme refer to England and Scotland. Did you know that Scotland had a unicorn <laughs> on its coat of arms? How cool is the unicorn? We should all move there. <laughs> Would they be happy with that? <laughs> so the unicorn comes along and stops short and asks, what is that thing? He explained who she is, and he said, I always thought those things were fabulous monsters, said the unicorn. And then Alice said, do you know, I always thought unicorns were fabulous monsters, too. I never saw one alive before. The unicorn says, fabulously, <laughs> well, now that we've seen each other. Said the unicorn, if you'll believe in me, I'll believe in you. I think all people meeting should think that. What a better world this would be. <laughs> Eliminate so much hassle. <laughs> the lion and the unicorn must act out their own nursery rhyme, so they start to fight. There they are fighting. So Alice bails out and reaches the seventh row. Okay, so now she's gone into the red knight. And so he wants to capture her, and he screams, Checkmate! Okay, which is funny because according to the diagram of this chess game, mm-hmm. the Red Knight obviously has no idea how to play the game because he's not going in the right direction, and you can't checkmate a pawn. Maybe I'm moving the Red Knight. <laughs> so he doesn't understand, which is funny. Yeah. And so uh, the White Knight comes to her rescue. The White Knight does know how to play chess, and he's basically like, dude, back off of this pawn. This is not your move. Get away, you know, defends her. Many people, including me, think the White Knight is Lewis Carroll. 
In fact, even the illustrator, Tennille, thought the White Knight was Lewis Carroll to the point where the original White Knight has Lewis Carroll's face on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's the only one, really, that seems to genuinely look after Alice's welfare in the whole entire thing. In the whole story, either story, he's often seen the White Knight as a metaphor for Lewis Carroll saying goodbye to all his child friends. There's a little meta in here because a white knight's move takes you down the road and then you turn left or right. And when he says goodbye to Alice, he's escorted her through the seventh square. He must say goodbye to her. She's about to become a queen. Doesn't this sound like Lewis Carroll saying goodbye Goodbye. to his child friends as they grow Mm -hmm. up? And he asks her if she could do him a favor and wave until he turns the corner. So he doesn't have to be sad. That sounds like Lewis Carroll, too. Yeah, it does. And also, he says, and this sounds like Lewis Carroll, too, (laughs) did you like my song? You didn't cry as much as I thought you would. Like, did you like my story? Did you like our time together? Mm -hmm. You aren't as sad to be leaving as I thought you would be. Makes me kind of feel sad for him. But the White Knight is clearly Lewis Carroll to me. So the White Knight goes away. The only person that's been nice to this girl (laughs) the whole entire thing. And so she's automatically crowned a queen. The crown appears, and the white and the red queen start in on Alice again. They start in with a bunch of word plays. It's like, Lewis Carroll's got to get them all out. He has them in his head. He's going to get them all out towards the end of this story, trying to confuse her. They invite each other to a party, of which Alice is supposed to be the host. And Alice is like, uh... And there was a really funny scene that you've got to listen to, where the red queen introduces her to the food, and then when Alice tries to carve... The Red Queen says, it's very rude to cut someone to whom you've been introduced. Which is a funny meta comment on etiquette, too, because cutting is mm-hmm. ignoring someone on purpose. Mm-hmm. So you're cutting the, I don't know, it's wordplay again. It is very rude to cut someone to whom yes. you've been introduced. So yes. Alice says, please don't introduce me to the pudding. Then. And so the Red Queen goes, meanly, Alice, pudding, pudding, Alice. And so then Alice can't eat any dessert either. Yep. What the heck? So Alice gets irritated by this. Like, why is everyone being mean? She gets so mad, and she pulls the tablecloth out and destroys all this stuff and starts shaking the Red Queen, shaking the Red Queen, shaking the Red Queen. So she captures the Red Queen. And when she captures the Red Queen, the Red King wakes up. Because he's in checkmate now. Right. So he's awake, and she disappears, sure enough. Just like Tweedledum and Tweedledee said she would do. And what does she find herself? Back in the armchair by the fire, holding onto a kitten. Shaking the kitten. I feel really bad for the kitten. Not really. <laughs> so was it all a dream again? Was she or was she the figment of the imagination of the of the Red, Red King. King? You don't know. There is a final poem in Through the Looking Glass called A Boat Beneath a Sunny Sky. And it kind of harkened back to the beginning of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. A boat beneath a sunny sky lingering onward dreamily in an evening of July. Children three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. And then it ends. Ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life, what is it but a dream? You can listen to both of these stories for free on iTunes. Uh, LibriVox.org has recorded them all. I would recommend listening to them. Yeah, that's a that's really a good way to do it. And they're broken into chapters that are really small. And I think there's a abridged and an unabridged version. Oh, get the unabridged. Yeah, might as well it. go all. You go don't want to miss in. any absurdities. And um, they are in the public domain, so they are part of the Gutenberg project. So the books are both also online, so you don't have to actually get a book you can read it on your computer and we will have links to all of that 
in our show notes. And again, we can't recommend enough the Annotated Alice, which is a lofty tome. It's it's not really something you can stick in your purse and haul around the pool, but it's got all the text plus all the notes for it. Um, and you can find out all the inside jokes and all the background and everything is in that book. So I hope this chapter by chapter was helpful to you. If you've come here first, do make sure to listen to episode 28 about Alice in Wonderland. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.medio.com. How lovely it is to wonder and wander. In the land of dreams In the land of dreams A world of delightful ideas to ponder In the land of dreams In the land of dreams